a trusted voice of truth and light. The narratives that mislead most of us aren't outright lies. They're the deliberate omission of facts that could give us a more complete picture. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. The world needs your leadership, and the essence of leadership is using your influence wisely wherever you happen to be standing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome to the show, my fellow wrong thinker. I am so glad you could be a part of my audience today. And I'm going to start out with a little bit of a confession here. I don't want to make anybody nervous. This would be especially true for anybody who I've been in contact with within the last couple of weeks. But I am 99% sure that uh, I have been fighting off COVID-19 for these uh, past few days. Now, I know some folks have noticed I've been contacted by a few people. Hey, I noticed you're, you're, you're posting some best of shows. Or you're running some reruns and so forth. Yes, you caught me. That's exactly what I have been doing, and it's uh, it's not that uh, it's not that I've been trying to get out of uh, doing a show, so much as I just I have not had the energy, as in like I couldn't breathe, I couldn't catch my breath, and I know this sounds crazy, so please don't think I'm just you know sitting here. Please feel sympathy for me, but I couldn't think. It it was like not being able to get a good breath of air was causing brain fog and difficulty in concentration and so i have been on the mend for um for the last few days and finally i actually i went to get tested yesterday and i just i i share this with you just to illustrate that uh, you know the the bureaucracy that is overseeing the testing and keeping us safe is part of the problem I showed up to get tested, and there was uh, maybe seven, eight cars in line. Um, they came up and took the last three of us and said, sorry, we're at capacity. You have to come back tomorrow. And my response was, look, you know, I felt serious enough about this that I really wanted to go get tested and, and make sure that I knew what I was dealing with. But I'm like, if you don't care about it, then I guess I don't care about it. So I came home, went to bed. <laughs> my wife woke me up about 930 last night, and she gave me... Don't laugh. Fish oil. Finest pure fish oil. This is something that we bought back in June at uh, the recommendation of a friend of ours who is a naturopath. And uh, he and several family members who had had COVID used this fish oil. You take a tablespoon of it about every eight hours. But it's, it's specifically good when, when your lungs are starting to get really, really tight which was some of the symptoms I had been experiencing over the last few days that were really causing me concern. And I'm not trying to sell you anything. I'm not, I, don't, I don't even know that I could tell you the brand name or anything. I will just tell you that I took that first tablespoon about 9.30 last night, took another one about 6 o'clock this morning, and what a night and day difference. I'm talking total game changer. In that uh, my lungs relaxed, I can breathe better. I'm I'm still not running on all cylinders, but I feel so much better. So much so that I thought I'm not going to shirk my duties. I'm not going to pull up a best of show today. I uh, I have some good thoughts and some good things to share with you. But uh, but I want you to know if if the symptoms you know listed off on on the various websites, um, if if they are accurate in tracking, uh, pretty much. All of it, except the loss of taste and smell. I never experienced that. But this was like this was like a, a really fast moving 
bout of the flu that then turned into like a lingering cold, but just sapped every ounce of energy from me. Um, kind of crazy stuff. So I don't believe the idea that no, it's all just a made up virus and it's no good. Um, it's, it can be serious. And I can totally see where somebody who has compromised health or the comorbidities, diabetes, heart disease, that sort of stuff, obesity, it could be a very serious matter for them. And frankly, there was a day or two where I was like, holy crap, is this going to turn into a serious matter for me? Knock on wood. So far, it hasn't. But I got to say, Dr. Doty, thank you for warning us about this fish oil. My wife grabbed a bottle of it back in June. And uh, what can I say? You know, people may say, well, Brian, that's just the placebo effect. You took it because you expected something to happen. All I know is when I woke up this morning for the first time in several days, I could actually breathe easier. And as I've continued taking it, um, it it really seems that, that I've turned a corner. So may want to look into that if, if that's a possibility. Um, there's there's some great information out there. And as far as the state and its testing apparatus, yeah, do it if you must. But I'm telling you, the, the bureaucracy is is just proving to me at every level. You can't trust the, the bureaucracy to to manage something like this. You just can't. And we shouldn't have to. Speaking of which. Let's dive right in here. One of the biggest takeaways of the whole lockdown approach to COVID-19 is that every one of us is vulnerable when government determines which jobs are essential and which are not. I've got a terrific article here from Sam Bocetta. This was from the Foundation for Economic Education. And in a genuine free market, he says it's the consumer who should remain sovereign. Not the government determining the essentialness of someone's livelihood. Sam Bocetta says, did you ever think that there would come a time when going to work or meeting with consenting individuals would be acts punishable under the law? Or if going to the grocery store or something as basic as getting a haircut would be forbidden by the authorities? He says, to say that the coronavirus has changed our world as we knew it is an understatement. It has made practicing your free will a crime to a considerable extent. Now, the COVID-19 pandemic hit the economy hard both nationally and internationally. But he says things took a surprising turn when cities and states across the country ordered the closure of what they deemed to be, quote, non-essential businesses. This one move had everybody asking several legitimate questions, which businesses are considered essential. Is the practice of a few government officials determining the essentialness of anybody's livelihood right Isn't the whole point of a truly free society for businesses to stay open and allow people to take the risk to go out in public if they so desire? So he says in this article, we'll try to dissect the thought process related to this distinction, along with the negative implications lockdowns have had for business owners and employees alike. We start with essential business versus non-essential business, by which he means essential businesses are those that have been granted through the legal benefit of continuing operations despite the pandemic, although the specific definition varies from one state to another. Medical professionals, emergency services, grocery stores, post offices, shipping businesses, banks and gas stations are just a few of the businesses generally deemed as essential. On the other hand, theaters, restaurants and bars, museums, gyms, recreation centers, shopping malls and salons have been demoted to non-essential status. 
And what makes it worse is that owners have been forced to close their doors indefinitely. Los Angeles Mayor Eric Garcetti promised he would shut down the businesses of, quote, selfish business owners. He further threatened citizens who uh, don't abide by the authorities to criminally charge them, even shut off their basic amenities such as power and water. Now, Sam Bochetta says it's clear that many government officials and bureaucrats simply fail to understand that using a means of threat and coercion directly goes against the constitutional and natural rights of human beings. So while it's true that the coronavirus pandemic has created unique circumstances, our elected officials really need to think before closing down businesses, even if only temporarily. After all, there's the crippling effect on the economy. He says we can't help but ask, what are everyday people and business owners supposed to do? Every aspect of the economy has been affected since the virus hit. Credit card spending from American consumers on everyday purchases has plummeted by more than 40 percent. The number of unemployed Americans soared by over 14 million. Hundreds of thousands of businesses have been forced to shut their doors permanently. Just as as just discussed He says the forceful shutdown of livelihoods and strict impositions of rules goes against the true essence of freedom, most notably freedom of assembly, freedom of association, freedom of choice. But the heavy impact of the shutdowns on the economy brings up another moral issue. People being free to continue their livelihoods through doing business and exchanging value with one another. And he asks, should we really be leaving economies to the whims of politicians and allowing them to blatantly experiment with the livelihoods of millions of people. Because what many of these politicians don't understand is that the economy isn't a light switch that can be turned off and then quickly turned back on with zero or even minor consequences. Okay, I'm going to hit the pause button here because we're coming up on our first break. When we come back, we're going to talk about how is this essentialness in terms of which businesses are allowed to remain open and to continue to function? How is this determined? Maybe the word essential isn't uh, as accurate as maybe the word preferred, because this is how many politicians have you know, outlined which businesses should be allowed to continue doing business. They're either preferred or they're non-preferred. Does that sound like a legitimate function of government? It sure doesn't to me. We'll be back after this. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. By the way, if you want to join the conversation, please do, 801-331-8113. Yes, we will have to stay socially distanced. You probably want to mask up so you don't uh, risk catching the crud. But I would still love to talk to you, 801-331-8113. So I'm uh, sharing an article here from Sam Bochetta, why everyone is vulnerable when government determines the essentialness of someone's livelihood. And one of the things he tackles here is, how is this essentialness determined? He says, it's a fact that government officials are determining how essential someone's livelihood is. And it's these same officials who have a questionable understanding of economics and the potential consequences of their decisions. This immediately makes everyone involved vulnerable. See, the whole idea behind the concept of free enterprise 
is allowing consumers to decide whether or not a product or service is worth their money or if they want to support a company by buying their products. It was simple before, at least in theory, a self-regulating market was the primary reason for the shutting down of businesses. Many politicians lauded China's response despite their appalling censorship practices, giving into the belief that sacrificing freedoms would be a viable means of protecting the economy. But he points out now things have changed. Government officials shutting down economies doesn't not only doesn't reflect fair competition, but it's also an arbitrary act of deciding the importance of specific businesses or industries over others. And in addition to this, some of these essential businesses aren't any less risky. Multiple news outlets have reported how grocery stores have become hotbeds of the virus, putting both the employees at risk as well as the customers. Think about it from this perspective. Why is visiting and sometimes even cramming inside acceptable inside a grocery store and not a salon? Why should workers in so-called essential industries who don't want to continue working amidst the pandemic be asked to continue? Why should students and teachers be forced to take online classes, which has directly resulted in numerous new privacy concerns? Why should companies lay off the majority of their workforce without enough notice or even severance packages? Now, most people think it's reasonable for governments to consider a food store as essential and not a haircut place. But this isn't right if you keep human rights in mind. The state doesn't have the right to deem what is essential or not and make the choice for others. Otherwise, it's just the blatant classification of certain businesses being more valuable than others, which goes against the true meaning of democracy. Sam Bocetta says applying shutdowns can definitely be unconstitutional, especially when a mayor treats a gun shop less favorably because just because somebody can't accept one Second Amendment rights or when civil groups are allowed to convene in numbers, but churches aren't. All of this is ultimately what happens when the right to make decisions affecting the lives of individual people is no longer entrusted to said individual. He says, let's suppose that someone does get sick with something contagious. Shouldn't the state have a role in preventing that person from being out in public in order to prevent other people from getting sick? Plus, there's herd immunity and the fact that being forced to stay at home and not getting exposed to the virus might end up making our immune systems weaker guaranteeing we become more susceptible to the virus. But he says, what if a different approach was adopted instead? One where government officials allowed businesses to adapt to the circumstances created by the coronavirus pandemic, rather than issuing orders to have them shut down entirely. Now, such an approach is certainly not unprecedented or out of the question, as we have seen with Sweden. Sweden did not, Sweden did not shut down its economy and managed to have a very low have very low cases of the coronavirus as opposed to countries that are in a lockdown, though not all. Sam Bocetta says officials are turning their face from the reality that millions live paycheck to paycheck. They don't have a financial safety net to look back on. These officials also fail to realize that every industry is interrelated. Annihilating supply chains will eventually cause essential businesses to suffer as well. And this brings us to the importance of decentralization of power. The Tenth Amendment states the powers not delegated to the United States by the Constitution, nor prohibited by it to the states, are reserved to the states respectively or to the people.
In other words, powers not specifically given to the federal government by the Constitution fall on the individual states. The debate here is whether the central government or the states have authority on certain issues. For example, President Donald Trump argues that the U.S. government has the authority to order the states to reopen. But the responsibility of coronavirus testing falls to the states. Now, keeping this in mind, he says an effective solution here would be to decentralize power from the federal government to the states and then from the states to the local governments. Localism can be very helpful when it comes to addressing pandemic or economic recession related issues since it gives more control to citizens. A person's individual vote matters more in a local election than on the state or federal level because fewer people are voting in a local area. So everyone's vote carries more weight. This also translates to people having more control over their lives and greater control over the government. I think the takeaway here is there is nothing essential or non-essential about livelihood. Sam Bocetta says, in a genuine free market, it's the consumer who should remain sovereign. All activities related to economics are, in essence, human activity. This means that everyone's livelihood is important to them. Making misinformed decisions and disregarding the contribution of a specific section as non-essential is a colossal mistake that will have dire consequences for the years to come. I'll have a link to this in the show notes. You can check it out for yourself at com. That just rang particularly true to me, which is why I'm sharing it with you. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join the conversation. By the way, you notice I'm not spending a whole lot of time talking about, uh, you know, the current uh, election shenanigans and the counts and recounts and whatnot. Um, I, I guess if I have to sum it up, this is how I'm going to put it. It definitely appears that there is some gaming of the system going on. No, I don't have ironclad proof of that. But let's remember the same people who for the last four years have been telling us, well, somebody interfered with our elections. Somebody monkeyed with the elections. Someone manipulated our elections. They're now strangely quiet. Well, there could be no possibility of, uh, of electioneering uh, manipulation. <laughs> yeah, I'm not buying it. And what should be a fairly easy task of counting and tabulating votes has instead turned into some kind of political gamesmanship. I'm less attached to which candidate is going to come out on top, at least in the presidential race. And I'm more attached to the idea that uh, everybody is disenfranchised. Everybody. When this kind of monkey shine takes place. Now, if I seem like I'm unconcerned or less concerned than I should be, let me explain to you where I'm coming from. I made my mind up a long time ago that I will not be ruled by power seekers and opportunists. So those who maintain, well, this election means you have to do what we say. No, I don't. I reserve the right to withhold my consent. And, and in fact, there's a, there's a commentary here from Tom Cranowitter that I think is worth sharing. He says, I've been offering some hard, unpopular truths recently. Here's another. He says, progressives have an insatiable appetite to steal and or control what belongs to others. Many of your choices, like how you run your business, how you educate your children, how you protect your family, with whom you trade, and how you purchase health care services, progressives want to make for you. He says progressives view your income, your money, as funding for their boondoggle government programs. And they're not going to ask you to donate voluntarily. They're going to vote 
and take your money whether you agree or not. So here's the hard truth. He says, we are quickly approaching a situation where liberty-loving Americans who simply want to keep what they earn and tend to their own lives are going to stop participating in elections and will refuse to have the results of elections pushed on them. As growing numbers of Americans refuse to have their own freedom and property put up for a vote, they will push back. They know that voting to take other people's property and freedom is not a legitimate election. So if I seem like I'm strangely calm about all of this, it's because I've already decided I'm not going to go along with someone's supposed mandate, which lacks moral authority. I won't do it, and I don't think you should either. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113 if you'd like to join the conversation. I know it really, it sucks being in this this holding pattern. Everybody wants closure. We want to know one way or another, how is the election going to shake out? Um, I share this in the, in the second hour of the show. There are some bright spots to this. There, there are some silver linings. And, you know, in, in spite of the fact that, you know, for, for those who were, you know, absolutely, you know, hoping that Trump would would get, uh, you know, a very clear victory, um, it hasn't happened. And that's not to write things off and say, well, well you know, we shouldn't uh, shouldn't see to it that uh, proper election procedures are followed and so forth. Um, this isn't throwing our hands up in the air and admitting defeat. And here's the thing, though. I believe there's far less impact on your life based on who occupies the White House than you've been led to believe. And I know right now everybody's giving a lot of mental space to either Biden or to Trump. Can I suggest this is the time to just take a few steps back, take take a few deep breaths, take a cold shower if you need to. And recognize that uh, it's it's not the be all and all. Worst case scenario, Biden, you know, manages to to be elected. Do you really think that uh, that he and Kamala Harris are going to to implement, you know, a Green New Deal? Because it seems to me if there's anything we can draw from at least the 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 even split so even that it's taking days to figure out how the votes went. If we can draw anything from that, it's that uh, clearly there is no mandate. Now, that works, unfortunately, uh, in, in against Trump as well. There's no clear mandate that, uh, you know, Trump, you know, has all the answers. And I'm sorry for those who are, you know, feeling offended, like, why, well, Brian, you're not standing up for Trump. I'm just saying the presidency shouldn't be that big of a deal. And if it is that big of a deal, that should be a really strong indicator that we have put way too much power. We've granted way too much authority, either real or imaginary, to Washington, D.C. Take some of it back. You do realize they work for us, not the other way around. Take it back. Reclaim it. Withdraw your consent if you have to. Besides the fact that we're seeing right now that uh, the, the political system itself, it's all about power. You knew that, right? 
The fact that people are playing around and trying to take advantage and there's there's so many questions. And I know some people are very quick to, to dismiss this as, well, you know, there's nothing strange going on here. Yeah, right. If nothing else, look, even if it's not even if it's not, you know, outright voter fraud, there's incompetence on display here that you cannot deny. So step off. <laughs> it's it's not like, no, this is exactly how the system has always worked and was intended to work. We have had multiple elections, as I pointed out in the, in the other hour of the show. Um, there, there are smaller countries with far less technology, far less resources who managed to have a very competent and and professionally handled election without the kind of drama that we're currently experiencing. So let's not pretend that this is exactly the system that we were given and the way it's supposed to go. It's not. Now, let me share with you some hopeful stuff here. This is from Joseph Pierce. I picked this up off of intellectualtakeout.org. Give the devil enough rope and he'll hang himself. Give him enough power and he'll hang us first. Now, Joseph Pierce says that might not seem very reassuring. (laughs) As many of us find ourselves facing pre-election stress syndrome. He says, so much seems to be riding on this particular election that it's easy to lose our peace of mind in angst-ridden concerns about the future of our nation and the world. And yet, he says, it should be reassuring to know that the devil and those who are part of the devil's party are always in the process of destroying themselves, even if they are often destroying other things and good things at the same time. His point is well taken, being the lessons of history teach us that pride does indeed precede a fall. Now, he gives some good examples here. Look at the French Revolution. It ushered in a new age of liberty, egality, fraternity, or the victorious, uh, so the victorious revolutionaries believed. In reality, it ushered in what has become known to history as the reign of terror, a brief period of dictatorial debauchery in which the enemies of the revolution were executed and in which a policy of genocide was conducted against the people of the Vendee. Soon, however, the revolutionaries turned upon each other so that the very architects of the revolution fell victims to the very terror they had unleashed. The devils had hanged themselves, though not before hanging many innocent victims. Look at the Bolshevik Revolution, a crass reincarnation of the liberty, equality, and fraternity of the revolution in France, which would prove even more bloody than its prototype. Beginning with the hanging of their anti-communist enemies, the Bolsheviks soon started hanging each other. In purge after bloody purge, members of the Communist Party were thrown into prison or were executed on the orders of the party itself. Eventually, though it took 73 years, the Communist edifice collapsed under the weight of its own systemic corruption. Give the devil enough rope. Joseph Pierce then says, look at the rise and fall of the Nazis. When Hitler's brand of National Socialism seized power in Germany... The Führer boasted of the establishment of a thousand-year Reich. During the Night of the Long Knives, he ordered the murder of his own party members, those who had been his closest comrades during his rise to power. Given enough rope, he hanged his allies before finally committing suicide himself. As for his glorious thousand-year Reich, it crashed to ignominious ruin after just 12 blood-drenched years. Now, Joseph Pierce says all of these manifestations of the culture of death teach the time-proven truth that pride always precedes a fall. 
This is as it always has been and it always will be and always should be. The problem is not, however, that proud people are their own worst enemies. It's that they destroy the lives of the innocent on the egocentric altars they erect to their ego-driven selves. Given enough rope, they hang their blameless victims before they hang themselves. On a microcosmic level, in our present uh, meretricious culture, the pride that leads two people to fornicate all too often leads to an innocent child being put to death. On a macrocosmic level, this prideful spirit of fornication becomes systemic infanticide. Among other issues, this systemic slaughter of the innocents has become a rallying cry for the proud in the current election season. And he says there's no doubt about it. Give this particular devil enough rope and he will kill millions of children before he ultimately hangs himself from the scaffold of the untimely, unsustainable death culture or the ultimately unsustainable death, death culture. So this begs the question, what can be done? Do we simply wait for the hangman to place the noose around our necks? Joseph Pierce says, no, of course not. We have a solemn duty to resist evil, even though we must never resist it by becoming evil ourselves. We cannot use evil to a purportedly good end. We cannot fight fire with fire. We cannot seek an eye for an eye. We cannot fight hatred with hatred. If we use evil to defeat evil, the only victor is evil. And if evil is the victor, it's we who are the losers. He says the only way of defeating the power of darkness is to rely on the power beyond darkness. Above all shadows rides the sun, says that greatest of diminutive prophets, Samwise Gangi, therefore thereby enunciating an overarching and overriding truth that should enlighten every thought and action in our lives. Be not afraid, said St. John Paul II to the people of Poland during the years of communist oppression. Joseph Pierce says the only purpose of any person's life is the duty to answer the God-given call to get to heaven. This is only possible with the supernatural assistance, which theologians call grace. The end of the world is nigh. It ends on the last day of each of our individual lives. In this sense, the world could end tomorrow. It is this ultimate reality which should animate and motivate us. The devil might be able to hang us before he hangs himself, but he can't deprive us of the resurrection which will separate us from his clutches forever. He doesn't have the power to deprive any of us of this ultimate happy ending. Only we have such power. We have the power to believe that the devil is all-powerful, which is believing the very lies the devil tells us, and to forget God's omnipotence, omnipresence, and omniscience. We have the power to ignore, forget, or reject the happy ending that gives our lives meaning. And we can wield this self-destructive power by worrying too much about the devil and those who serve him under the banner of pride. Do you get what he's saying here? It's not about the power of the self-defeating devil and his self-defeating minions in this land of exile. It's about God and those who would serve him in this veil and veil of tears with humble acceptance of the inevitable sufferings of life. The world is but a stage on which the metadrama of human history is played in God's presence. The whole of history is his story. And what's more, it's a story with a happy ending, which has already happened in his omnipresence. Our only purpose is to be part of that happy ending. I don't know why, but this article just spoke to my heart. I hope it speaks to yours as well. There's a bigger plan. You and I are a part of it. Let's not lose sight and get caught up in the minutiae. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. 801-331-8113. I know we all have a lot on our minds. And I hope you're, you're picking up on uh, there is, we have far more reason to hope than not. I don't know about you. It's not like I'm looking for, you know, bad things to happen and saying, oh, look, now we have purpose. Like, uh, was it Father Mulcahy? Remember on MASH, the episode where everyone either got the flu or food poisoning? Anyway, everybody was everybody was sick in bed. And here's Father Mulcahy emptying bedpans and washing sheets. And he's going, oh, I've just never felt so useful in my entire life. <laughs> OK, I'm not wishing for something like that. At the same time. I have to admit that uh, the, the more the intensity level gets ramped up, the stronger I feel this certainty that we were born for this time. Not because it's going to be easy or because it's going to be a cakewalk, but because we were, we were placed here and blessed with talents and abilities by God to do the right thing in the right ways and for the right reasons. Now, I know that can sound lofty, and I get it. If, if, if that sounds way too metaphysical for you, I understand. But I have absolute conviction, like right down to my bones, that this is a time where people who, uh, who resonate with the idea of being bringers of truth we were born for this time. And I believe that as we do that, as we step forward and we answer that, that sense of calling, and most people I've talked to who have that, that feeling like I need, to, I need to be a person who speaks truth. I need to be a bringer of truth and light. It's not because they're trying to improve their brand or they're just, you know, trying to make a name for themselves. They're not just, they're not attention whores. More often than not, they're doing it because they feel that there is some kind of divine purpose. They feel God's hand in their life in some way that animates their desire to speak up, even if it's painful, even if it puts them at odds with the masses, which pretty much guaranteed it will put you at odds with the masses. But the point remains there need to be people willing to speak the truth. And I'm so grateful for all those who have paved the way ahead of us, who have built a, a solid foundation on which we can stand, on which we can enunciate the principles and the practices of freedom. I don't know, maybe I'm nuts to look at it this way, but to me, this is one of the greatest privileges that life offers. It's that sense of purpose. And I don't believe for a moment, no matter how things may appear, that anyone who stands and speaks the truth at a time when it counts is doing so in vain. Even if the masses conspire to destroy you, I still don't think it's in vain. In fact, I think if you look at human history, you will see some of the key pivot points of history were when individuals found the courage to make their feet move against all odds and speak the truth, even when it came at, at a tremendous price. Take that for what it's worth. 
Here's a topic that uh, is going to make some people uncomfortable, but I think it's a worthwhile topic. What will it take for Americans to consider breaking up? Yes, I'm talking secession. Now, you may think, well, that just sounds like a bunch of, you know, sour grapes on the part of losers. (laughs) No, Um, Jeff Deist actually, I think, makes a very principled, uh, a principled examination of the question. What would it take for Americans to consider breaking up? And, And you want to consider this. If we've reached a point where we have two nations, and I think this is probably about that point. Look how divided we are right down the middle. I mean, on the one hand, everybody who was voting against Trump believed they were voting for the soul of this nation. On the other hand, the people voting for Trump, and I I realize I'm separating it into two camps here, but there's some nuance, but... They believe we were we were voting for the soul of the nation, too, and trying to defend it and defend what's what's pure and right and good. We clearly have some very differing points of view. But what if we've reached a point where there just isn't common ground? What then? Jeff Deist, writing for Mises.org, says it's one thing for mass democracy to produce bad results in the form of elected politicians or enacted policies. It's another when the democratic process itself breaks down because nobody trusts the vote or the people who count it. But that's precisely where we are. He says, as things stand at this writing, this week's presidential election remains undecided and looking ugly. At least six states are still uncalled, or at least were at the time of the writing. Both the Trump and Biden camps have their legal teams claiming victory. He says, we may be in for days, weeks, or even months of legal skirmishes, all of which can only add to our intense political or more accurately cultural breakdown. He says, today, perhaps 140 million American voters are in purgatory, fearfully wondering what will happen to them if the other guy wins. This is nothing short of a national psychosis, absurd, yet deadly real. And he says it gets worse every four years, despite the narrowing of any policy differences between the two parties over recent decades. If anything, presidential votes are overwhelmingly about tribal affiliations with our kind of person, not substantive ideology. And he says, yes, this is unhealthy. And yes, the psychosis manifests because the stakes are so high. It manifests because the government is far too big and rapacious. Lawmaking and jurisprudence too centralized in D.C., the unitary executive presidency too powerful and society too politicized. But he points out these are unhelpful truisms. Plenty of Americans abjectly support more government, more centralized political power, an omnipotent president and Supreme Court and the sharp politicization of every facet of life in nation state and the economy. Mises talks about a liberal nationalism and explains what a confident nation requires. Quote, a nation that believes in itself and its future, a nation that means to stress the sure feeling that its members are bound to one another, not merely by accident of birth, but also by the common possession of a culture that is valuable above all to each of them. End quote. And this is where Jeff Deist asks, What then is the common culture Americans possess? In other words, what binds us together as a unifying principle? Is it language, religion, constitutionalism, love of country? What country? Markets? It's certainly not obvious, and few of us feel optimistic about America's future. Worse still, COVID lockdowns, he says, 
have attenuated the ostensibly non-political spheres of life from family and work to sports, dining, movies, and travel. When we stare ourselves in the mirror all day and read everyone's innermost thoughts on social media, we find familiarity breeds contempt. So he says, regardless of how the election turns out, it's obvious America is not much of a country anymore, much less a nation. The sooner we accept this, the sooner we can get to work asserting the principles of federalism, subsidiarity, uh, nullification, even secession. None of the current frictions will get better over time, but he says they can get much, much worse. And our most important task must be to avoid any movement toward outright civil war. Now, there are workable baby steps toward this. Law professor Frank Buckley writes about secession light in his sober and reasoned book on the subject of a national breakup. Buckley sees a third way approach between our current dysfunction and an outright breakup into new political entities, primarily through aggressive federalism and state nullification. This echoes sentiments from Professor Angelo Cotovia, who similarly argues that the Fed simply lack the manpower to enforce federal laws and edicts on recalcitrant states. Just as blue states declared sanctuary cities as havens from Trump's immigration policies, red states could restrict all manner of federal dictates like abortion and gun control while simply daring the feds to interfere. At the end of the day, Cotavia reminds us there are only a few million of them and many millions of us. And progressives, too, share this sentiment. Even if Biden prevails, they remain shaken by the degree of Trump's support. In fact, the 2016 election saw the new republic advocate nothing short of a renunciation of hated red states. Now, Jeff D says things things don't have to be this way. He says Americans are lovely people, generous, open, but politics divides them in the worst and most unnecessary ways. He says it's time to break up and millions of us sense this instinctively. So what's stopping us? Well, for one thing. Secession remains bound up with the civil war and Confederate slavery in the American psyche. Distant in time as they are, manifest destiny and the westward expansion resulted in a nice round number of 50 states. A nice big American number. Throw in a few specious Supreme Court decisions like Texas v. White, and it's no surprise many Americans still have concrete between their ears on the subject. I strongly recommend you take a look at this article. It's included in the show notes, which you can find at thebrianhydeshow.com. What would it take for Americans to consider breaking up? This is The Brian Hyde Show.